Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. It should be tough for states to cut taxes. Unlike the federal government, state ha- uh, states have to balance their budgets. This means that any reduction in tax revenue results in less money to spend, and the people who receive money from the state budget hate that. In addition, the people who benefit from tax cuts tend to benefit only a little. It's a classic concentrated benefits and diffuse costs problem. Yet over a dozen states have cut their tax rates over the past year. And the latest was Mississippi, which not only cut its rates, but is converting to a flat tax rate where all income gets taxed at the same rate. Uh, Russ Latino is the president of Empower Mississippi and was one of the advocates for the policy. Russ, welcome. James, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Why did lawmakers vote to cut taxes in Mississippi? I think there the reasons are multiple. Um, I think part of it is what you said at your introduction, which is all of the guys that make up and gals that make up the legislature um, or the supermajority Republican uh, part of the legislature ran on the idea that they believed in smaller government ran on the idea that they believed in the idea that people spend their money better than government spends its money. And that's how you grow an economy, is not through central planning. It's not through sort of inefficient moving of widgets. It's through people keeping what they earned and investing it in their families and their businesses and their communities. So I think there was a philosophical element behind this, at least for the people who really were motivated to push it. And I would say that the Mississippi Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn, uh, was one of those people um, who two years ago said he wanted to eliminate the income tax. It was his number one priority and pushed it hard. Uh, The governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves, also sort of coalesced around the idea of can we eliminate the income tax? And so that was like the starting charge. I think the, the sort of math that made that conversation possible is complex in a way. It's easy when you just look at the figures. So the figures told us that in fiscal year 21, we had over a billion dollar surplus above revenue estimates. In fiscal year 22, we're gonna have about a billion billion point two at the end of of this period, which ends June 30th um, in revenue over uh, estimates. And then we were, on pace to have about $4.4 billion when the Revenue Estimating Committee met in reserves. That number is going to be actually much larger. So you're sitting on back-to-back billion-dollar surpluses. You're sitting on over $4 billion in reserves. And at some point, the thought should occur to you if you claim to be conservative or if you claim to believe in people's ability to spend their money better, that perhaps we're gathering too much of it. Um, and so I think all of that served as an impetus towards the conversation. What I will tell you is that it still wasn't an easy conversation because uh, there certainly were detractors to the idea, uh, both within the Republican Party and outside of the Republican Party, who very much had their mindset around what we should be spending this money on. They sort of had predetermined goals. 
Um, and then I think there was an element of legitimate concern, James, and I'll stop, around the idea that a lot of the revenue surplus was a byproduct of federal bad fiscal and monetary federal policy that pumped about $36 billion into Mississippi's economy over a two-year period above and beyond what the GDP of the state normally is. And so some of that was reckoning of figuring out how much of that is contributed to these revenue increases and how much of that is sustainable. Um, but it made for a great conversation about how we ultimately benefit our economy and by virtue of that, the people of Mississippi. Okay, so you said $4 billion in surpluses plus $1 or $1.2 billion in extra money. How large is that in Mississippi uh, in Mississippi budget terms? Uh, it's huge. So the state um, last year had a $5.8 billion general fund budget. So when we talk about uh, reserves of $4.4 billion, and really it's going to end up being a lot more than that, but using the conservative number of $4.4 billion, you're talking about close to 100% of our annual spending sitting on the sidelines. Mm. So that's that. So what, basically, uh, the situation that you found yourself in sounds like you had Republicans in charge. They ran on uh, a proposal to cut taxes. Revenues coming in at more than fifteen you percent know, growth. And I assume you're like, come on, guys, it's time to fulfill your campaign promise. I, I think that's right. I think part of the um, part of the problem, and I don't know if you experienced this in Michigan or not, but part of it is when you've got a Republican governor. And you've got supermajority Republican legislature. Often the fight isn't over should we or should we not cut taxes, as an example. Mm -hmm. The fight is over the extent. The fight is over what the plan should look like. The fight is over who you benefit in, in doing these sorts of restructuring. And a lot of times the policy gets lost, not because people are opposed to tax cuts or good policy gets lost, not because people are opposed to tax cuts but because they have specific constituencies that they'd like to benefit through tax cuts mm -hmm. instead of looking at it, you know, on the basis of, can we make this low? Can we make this broad based? You know, can we make it behavior neutral? You know, can we make it simple and transparent? All those things that are sort of the hallmarks of good tax policy kind of get muddled when you get into that legislative process. And, and really to some degree, that's what happened here. It's not that the goal was ever in doubt. Um, the, the pathway is what was in doubt. Let's talk a little bit about that legislative process. What were some of the bad ideas uh, that got pitched and uh, how did you bolster some of the good ideas? So one of the interesting things about this process of the last two years is there are probably a dozen iterations of bills. Um, and some of them changed dramatically in some cases within a week's time. It'd be like, oh, you don't like that? Let me, let me throw something out on the table. So I won't go through the whole sort of history of it. What I will tell you is that um, the governor had set a mark that said we want to eliminate income taxes without any sort of offset, without raising any other taxes to make up for eliminating the income tax. Um, the speaker's plan had an offset built into it at the outset. So what the speaker wanted to do was to create a very large exemption in year one that would have been $50,000 for a single filer uh, and $100,000 for somebody married filing jointly. And then from there, implement a fairly restrictive uh, tax and expenditure limit on growth and spending, which was one and a half percent. 
Um, and so the way that they were going to eliminate the rest of the income taxes, any growth over that one and a half percent would have been applied to expand the exemption. So they were expanding sort of the exemption from bottom up. And the goal was to eventually end up in a scenario where you would not have anybody because the exemption was so large. Yeah, and the end result was that they were going to repeal the, the income tax. As in you have, you'd have an income tax, but you'd have to be earning lots of money to even be liable for it. Right. And at some point you would, no one would be liable. And then the bill literally provided for the limit of the repeal of the income tax code. Mm -hmm. The, um, you know, I think the, the difficulty there for some people, and I would include myself to some degree, was that there's a decent amount of economic literature out there and data that shows that what you need to be doing is bringing down marginal rates on everyone. Um, and that is how you end up getting more capital infused in the economy. That's how you end up getting more entrepreneurship. Um, and then there's a real sort of uh, substantive risk if what you're doing is just increasing tax exemptions, because the end result of that could be at some point we say, all right, if you make over 125,000, we're going to stop, you know, we're going to stop the tax exemption expansion. And so the end result is if that were to happen, all you've done is to narrow your base and you have far fewer people that are actually pulling the load, um, which I think most conservative thinkers would say that's a very bad thing. Um, you know, one of, I, I was in D.C. at the time that the Tax Cut and Jobs Act was passed. And one of the concerns that I had then was it's a good bill, um, but the expansion of the deduction by doubling it created a scenario where you're going to limit the percentage of people that actually paid taxes. And that has, in fact, occurred. Um, and so a very similar concern was here with, with that approach. The Senate, on the other side, um, really didn't want to do anything at first. So... Why not? They didn't come up with a proposal last year. This year, what they did was they said um, at, at the outset, well, we're going to eliminate the 4% income tax bracket, which is a bracket that only applies to $5,000 of income. Um, so it, it was the lesser of two brackets in Mississippi's tax code. We're going to eliminate that 4% bracket um, over four years. So the Senate's original plan, if you do the math, was $50 a year in tax cuts in an environment with $300 extra month in, in cost because of inflation. Um, and so I, I saw that scenario as one like Goldilocks and the three bears, right? It's like the Senate looked at the house plan and thought, Whoa, that's way too hot. That's way too aggressive. And then I think the house looked at the Senate plan and said, you know, that's tepid. It's cold. It's, it does nothing, you know? And, and so to some degree they were at an impasse, James, mm -hmm. And, and I think this is where, candidly, groups like Mackinac and groups like Empower end up playing a role. I've, I've talked to Joe Lehman about this a little bit, and it's like being and in the right Joe Lehman is the president of the Mackinac Center. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's being in the right place at the right time with the right idea. And so we had been pushing, without a whole lot of traction, this idea of why don't you start with a 4% flat tax? So take our top marginal rate was 5%. Take it down to 4%. That's a 20% reduction. Um, start there and then re reduce the top marginal rate over time using a population plus inflation type trigger, a Tabor type trigger. Um, and it really didn't gain any traction until the point that both sides were at such an impasse that it was clear they weren't going to accept the other's idea. And we were kind of able to say, well, what about this 4% flat tax thing we've been talking about? Um, and, and 
you know, as it turned out, the Senate ended up coming back and sort of negotiating against itself. They re-upped their tax proposal um, and introduced something that was going to bring down the top marginal rate. And then the, the conversation was able to unfold from there where we got to a really good place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what a lot of people need to realize in policy is that all uh, good ideas don't always get a response. That is, like, um, if you have a good idea, if you think that there's a really good reason to do something, lawmakers can just ignore it. So, if, you know, you can have a ton of money on the sidelines, but if um, if the legislators that have been elected don't want to pass a tax cut, they don't have to. Like, you can't force them uh, to do anything. But it sounds like you gave them some options that uh, that got to be feasible, even when these two chambers, again, I, I assume both Republican majorities who have different ideas about doing this one, couldn't agree. And you offered them an alternative that was acceptable. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And, and look, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, we don't we don't get to vote. We don't get to held, be held accountable for the decisions that lawmakers do make. Um but being a credible partner and being able to say, well, what about this? Could this be the middle ground that you guys are searching for? Ended in a good place. And so the, the end result, because I'm not sure we've really said it yet, but the end result mm-hmm. was about a $526 million tax cut, which is the largest tax cut in Mississippi history. Um, the way the bill works is in year one, it eliminates that 4% bracket I mentioned earlier which is, you know, a tax on the first $5,000 of taxed income. Um, So it immediately increases Mississippi's total exemption and deduction number to about $18,300 for a single filer and $36,600 for married filing jointly. It makes it the largest tax exemption in the country um, among the 41 states that collect income taxes. Yes. I should should (laughs) add that caveat. And then in years two through four, it brings down the top marginal rate from 5% to 4%. Um, So the end result of that is a flat 4% tax on all taxable income. We become one of 10 states with a flat tax, um, and we become the fifth lowest uh, income tax rate of any state. Um, And so we got to a very good place with sizable tax relief. But the process, you know, and I know you know this, but the process is just one where you keep grinding and grinding and grinding. It's almost like a rugby scrum Mm -hmm. until there's that opening and then things break. And um, and that's something that I think sometimes people that are on the outside look at it and they go, well, the legislature just doesn't do anything right. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't seem like policies are are being advanced. Um, And you alluded to the Overton window, which is clearly. Uh, something that came after a, a former leader of Mackinac. Um, but that is the right concept. It's it's you're moving the needle at sometimes in imperceptible ways until finally it creates a critical mass and you have that breakthrough. And candidly, I think that's what happened with, with the tax reform here. Yeah, so it uh, sounds like the House had one plan, the Senate had another plan, and there weren't really a lot of strong incentives to do either one. And they could have just been at an impasse and not done anything. Like that's a common thing in politics is that people have good ideas. They can't agree on, on which one's better and nothing happens. And you came in with, with an alternative. Why did they even bother listening to you? Um, I, I think there are a couple things. I mean, one, it wasn't always me. 
right? Mm-hmm. So, so sometimes you find other people that have influence um, and you have conversations with those people and you hope that they have conversations. Um, and there were lots of people that when I first you know, started having the, the chat about this, who said that's a really good idea. Some people in our business community that originally were pretty reticent to support the income tax elimination conversation um, came around to saying this is a really, really good idea. Um, and we were able to put together a coalition uh, of business leaders that, um, you know, that that had influence um, who started to, to talk about it. So that certainly was helpful. I, I think the um, the other thing is the the power or leverage dynamic was such that it, it appeared that the Senate, to some degree, was willing not to do any tax relief. Like they came up with a plan, um, but their heart wasn't in it. <laughs> mm. um, and so in that sense, they had a, a lot of leverage because they were in a position to say, well, you know, if you don't like this, then it's OK if it just falls apart. Um, the the sort of. The thing that changed that is that there were some senators that stood up and said, no, we, we want to try and get something done. And so then it became a conversation about how do you mitigate or mediate between, um, you know, two positions that are fairly far apart. And 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 some of that really was based on this idea that, OK, well, we've got this huge surplus now, but we probably won't always have it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that felt like a legitimate concern. Um, and one that needed to be grappled with. But but I think some of it was just um, there were people who were to some degree tired of having the debate and tired of getting beat up over it. Um, and then I think there were people. By the way, what, really- what do you mean uh, by that? Like, were, were the people who, who essentially weren't doing anything, did they feel like they were under attack? Or was it the people who were arguing for major reforms who were under attack? I, I think from different constituencies, both. Mm-hmm. Right. So there was a constituency that was opposed to tax reform that, you know, kind of led with the argument that we're not going to be able to fund schools. We're not going to be able to fund roads um, and made sort of a public services argument that probably put some pressure on House leadership. But at the end of the day, I think House leadership just had a conviction that this is something that we should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think on the flip side, if if there were members um in the Senate that were concerned about whether or not they should be doing this in a fairly conservative state, they were getting a lot of feedback that like, this should be something that is possible with supermajority Republican chambers. Um, and, and so I think, I think there were different pressure input inputs that had nothing to do with the idea that moved to some degree, the house leadership, but probably moved the Senate leadership more. Okay. So let's talk about the political incentives that they're facing, because it sounds like the big issue is, are we going to compromise and do something, or are we just going to complain about the other chamber's plan? What's what's really pulling on them to say, yes, we want to find something that we can agree on, and and what's pulling them to say, or what are the, what are the benefits that they would get from saying, no, we don't want to do a plan, or yes, we need to compromise? Yeah, I mean, I think not getting something done felt like a failure of two years of public discussion, lots of hearings, lots of iterations of plans. So I, I think there's a certain degree of inertia that created pressure. So like we, it, 
you know, to, to use a term maybe artfully like a sunk cost trap where where they looked at it and said, we've already spent all this time doing this. Like we need to come to a conclusion. I think there were other levers, though. I mean, some of that was we are sitting on these massive surpluses. We did run as if we believed in the idea that people should keep more of their money. Um, and so there were political pressures. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're sitting in a seat where you get to vote yay or nay on a tax cut and you told people you would vote yay um, in a state where people expect a degree of conservatism, then there's a political risk in not figuring out how to do that. I think there was also a political risk for the proponents, though, which is you don't want to be seen as having been Don Quixote mm-hmm. in the fight for tax relief. Right. Um, and so. I think there was a desire to get somewhere this year. I think, you know, cynically, there probably was some thought that Mississippi has an odd year election. So our uh, our election cycle will be in 23. Um, there probably was some thought that if we're going to do tax relief, uh, let's do it in 22 so that people experience it in 23. Mm-hmm. Um, just the reality of the political world we live in timing is a big factor and it's one of the factors they can change yeah yeah so there were there were both political incentives and policy incentives i think there was also this inertia or traction towards like we've put all this energy into it we should get something done now sometimes that yields really bad policy Mm -hmm. right because people become desperate and they start trading things They, they they start making policy weaker the great thing about this conversation is that the policy got made, in my mind, substantially stronger. And so you asked about some of the bad things, and I alluded to an argument about exemptions in the House and, and a fairly small, tepid response in the Senate. But there were some really sort of gimmicky ideas that had been thrown around and had been included in legislation. Uh, Mississippi has a grocery tax or a sales tax on groceries. There are mm-hmm. a lot of states that don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a, a desire to bring that down by half. And I think from our vantage point, you know, the sales tax on groceries, in some cases, if you believe in broad based taxes and consumption taxes are the broadest of base of taxes, right? That for some people, the only tax they pay is that sales tax. Um, so from a policy perspective, even though it may be popular, wasn't a great thought. Uh, there were uh, times where there were, uh, one-time rebates that were included, sort of the George Bush, we're going to give you a little candy um, mm-hmm. and then we'll we'll not keep giving you the candy, um, which tends not to be all that effective of a policy. There was a plan at one point to do a gas tax moratorium for six months, which I know is popular in a heavy inflation environment, but is just not good policy because you have to reinstate it in six months and then people are going to tell you that you raised their taxes. So, mm-hmm. All of that, the grocery tax cuts, the there was a car tag credit, um, you know, all of that stuff that I just described by the end of the, the process was stripped out. So the only thing we were left with was the elimination of a, a lower income tax bracket and a flat tax with a dramatically reduced rate that was the largest tax cut in Mississippi history. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, there was a trade-off that occurred during the process. But the trade-off in very um, non-typical way yielded far, far better policy on the back end. 
Yeah, but let's talk about where uh, where you landed in this in this thing. You said that the tax cut is uh, the it's going to allow people to keep five hundred twenty six uh, million more of them um, of the money that they earn. Uh, but the state budget is going to grow by one or one point two billion, right? So this is both allowing the state government to grow, where you're going to invest more in your government services, but also let people keep more of, of what they earn. Yeah, I mean that's that's right. I think it, it won't grow by one point two billion. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a realization uh, in in talking about this policy that we're not going to sustain you know, 1.2 billion in additional revenue over what we were doing a few years ago. Um, That there was an impact that came from COVID relief on the amount of money that people had to spend. And by virtue of that, on the amount of money that government took in. Um, And that those things, if you look at national savings rates, you know, it went from a peak around 35% down to 6%. So, so people, whatever they stored up during COVID is getting spent. Um, And, it's it's not realistic to believe that we're going to stay at those heightened levels forever. Now, I do think it was realistic to believe because of wage inflation that has occurred and doesn't go away ever um, that the state realistically is going to take in much more. There's going to there's still going to be a leap from where they were to where they'll end up, but there's also going to be an ebbing of some of the influence of the federal money. So, I think they were responsible in in at least trying to address that or figure that out. Um, I will say something we haven't talked about is we're also phasing out uh, our state's franchise tax. And we started that in 2016. So that's an additional 60 million a year uh, until it's phased out. Um, So that's also factored into how much we had to, to do. Um, But yeah, the state invested uh, about $500 million dollars in new new expenditures this year. Um, And a lot of that was in government services. The largest component of that was a $250 million teacher pay raise. And so it it can be frustrating when you have uh, proponents of bigger government and more spending, look at something like a tax cut and ignore the fact that because of our fiscal situation, we were simultaneously able to make investments at a level that the state had never been able to make before um, over a short period of time. And so I, I do think part of the story is that there can be a responsible balancing of growth and spending that recognizes that inflation doesn't just affect, you know, individuals, but also affects government. Um, but at the end of the day, there is still sort of this, this requirement, if you will, that when legislators are thinking about things like tax cuts, that they're also willing to recognize that they can't just be spending recklessly. And so I, I think Mississippi reached a good balance, James, but but I'm always one of those cautiously optimistic people that would look at it and say, even what was less dramatic than a full income tax cut with no offset could become problematic if the state were to continue to increase its recurring spending the way that it did this year and last year. Mm-hmm. So we haven't talked about Democrats uh, like this has been a Republican bill because Republicans have majorities in, in both the chambers plus uh, the governor. Um, and tax cuts tend to be a very partisan issue, as in Republicans like that, Dem- uh, Democrats don't. But I think I saw that 
Democrats voted for this, or at least some of them voted for this bill. What was going yeah, on there? Yeah, so I, that's a failure on my part to, to not mention that it in fact was bipartisan um, by the end of it. And um, I, I will tell you that some of the earlier iterations that had some of that stuff that I described as gimmicky had even more Democrat support. Um, and so one of the versions that passed out of the House, we got a 122 member House, um, got 106 votes, which includes probably about 20 Democrats, uh, more than 20 Democrats. So a good chunk of Democrats um, that voted in the House for it. By the time the stripped down version came around, there were fewer, but there were still a good chunk. Um, and that was true in both chambers. So we had uh, Democrat senators that voted for the final package and Democrat representatives that voted for the final package. And I have to look back at the numbers, but it, we're not talking about a Joe Manchin situation, right? Um, we're talking about a good chunk in both chamber. It wasn't, it wasn't one guy that we get to claim bipartisanship around. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a testament one to just a recognition of the math. Like we're sitting on this much money. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, and then, you know, two, I, I think I think the leadership's credit, they had done a good job talking to members and sort of getting buy-in around the idea uh, that the state could do more if we empowered people. And, and, you know, James, my biggest takeaway from all of this, and we'll see if it ends up bearing fruit, but a lot of people would look at Mississippi and they'd say, well, that's a deep red state. It's got supermajority Republican chambers, Republican statewide Republican elected officials. You know, they're deep, deep red. And I would look at it and tell you, having lived here my whole life, that for most of Mississippi's history, we were a Democrat state. Really, it wasn't until Haley Barber in the early 2000s that we started to move Republican. And then it wasn't until 2011 that we took, uh, that Republicans took um, the chambers. Um, and so for most of the history, it was a Democrat state. We, we as a state are very conservative socially, but if you looked at our economic policies as a state, what you would see is a history of TVA Democrat style economics, very protectionist, um, very oriented around how do we keep outsiders from bringing their products and services in, right. And, and very dependent upon government. You know, I think we've got the fifth largest public sector as a percentage of our, our population. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's without a big union presence. It's just a byproduct of reliance on government. And I think this conversation at least exposed a philosophical divide where, you know, our vantage point and others was Mississippi has been the most dependent state in the country on government spending, both federal and state. We have for, for generations, relied on big government as a way to sustain ourselves. And if that was the recipe for success, Mississippi should be at the top of the heap. But Mississippi, as most people know, is not at the top of the heap. And so it was kind of looking at it and saying, we've tried it this big government way. We've tried it as a, as a sort of a system that relies on government spending. It hasn't worked. Is it at least worth trying the idea that if we trust people with their own resources and more of their own resources, that that can be what leads to real prosperity and real growth? Um, if we start treating people as contributors instead of dependents. And, and to me, this is the beginning of that conversation. So there's there's a lot of stuff that needs to happen 
in between. Um, but to me, that's the most significant part of this, even beyond the fact that I'm going to get to keep more of my money. It's like, can we have that paradigm shift? Mm-hmm. Russ, uh, thank you very much for helping us understand what's within the Overton window. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.